Emma Goldman's Living My Life, Chapter 8. It was May, 1892. News from Pittsburgh announced that trouble had broken out between the Carnegie Steel Company and its employees organized in the Amalgamated Association of Iron and Steel Workers. It was one of the biggest and most efficient labor bodies of the country, consisting mostly of Americans, men of decision and grit who would assert their rights. The Carnegie Company, on the other hand, is a powerful corporation known as a hard master. It was particularly significant that Andrew Carnegie, its president, had temporarily turned over the entire management to the company's chairman, Henry Clay Frick, a man known for his enmity to labor. Frick was also the owner of extensive coke fields where unions were prohibited and the workers were ruled with an iron hand. The high tariff on imported steel had greatly boomed the American steel industry. The Carnegie Company had practically a monopoly of it and enjoyed unprecedented prosperity. Its largest mills were in Homestead near Pittsburgh, where thousands of workers were employed, their tasks requiring long training and high skill. Wages were arranged between the company and the union according to a sliding scale based on the prevailing market price of steel products. The current agreement was about to expire and the workers presented a new wage schedule calling for an increase because of the higher market prices and enlarged output of the mills. The philanthropic Andrew Carnegie conveniently retired to his castle in Scotland, and Frick took full charge of the situation. He declared that henceforth the sliding scale would be abolished. The company would make no agreements with the Amalgamated Association. It would itself determine the wages to be paid. In fact, he would not recognize the union at all. He would not treat with the employees collectively as before. He would close the mills, and men might consider themselves discharged. Thereafter, they would have to apply for work individually, and the pay would be arranged with every worker separately. Frick curtly refused the peace advances of the workers' organization, declaring that there was nothing to arbitrate. Presently, the mills were closed. Not a strike, but a lockout, Frick announced. It was an open declaration of war. Feeling ran high in homestead and vicinity. The sympathy of the entire country was with the men. Even the most conservative part of the press condemned Frick for his arbitrary and drastic methods. They charged him with deliberately provoking a crisis that might assume national proportions in view of the great numbers of men locked out by Frick's action and the probable effect upon affiliated unions and unrelated industry. Labor throughout the country was aroused. The steelworkers declared they were ready to take up the challenge of Frick. They would insist on their right to organize and to deal collectively with their employers. Their tone was manly, ringing with the spirit of the rebellious forebears of the Revolutionary War. Far away from the scene of the impending struggle, in our little ice cream parlor in the city of Worcester, we eagerly followed developments. To us, it sounded the awakening of the American worker, the long-awaited day of his resurrection. The native toiler had risen. He was beginning to feel his mighty strength. He was determined to break the chains that held him in bondage so long, we thought. Our hearts were fired with admiration for the men of Homestead. We continued our daily work, waiting on customers, frying pancakes, serving tea and ice cream, but our thoughts were in Homestead with the brave steel workers. We became so absorbed in the news that we would not permit ourselves enough time even for sleep. At daybreak, one of the boys would be off to get the first editions of the papers. We saturated ourselves with the events of Homestead to the exclusion of everything else. Entire nights, we would sit up discussing the various phases of the situation, almost engulfed by the possibilities of a gigantic struggle. One afternoon, a customer came in for ice cream, while I was alone in the store. 
As I set the dish down before him, I caught the large headlines of the paper. Latest developments in Homestead. Families of strikers evicted from the company houses. Woman in confinement carried out into the street by sheriffs. I read over the man's shoulder Frick's dictum to the workers. He would rather see them dead than concede to their demands, and he threatened to import Pickerton detectives. The brutal bluntness of the account, the inhumanity of Frick towards the evicted mother inflamed my mind. Indignation swept my whole being. I heard the man at the table ask, Are you sick, young lady? Can I do anything for you? Yes, you can let me have your paper, I blurted out. You won't have to pay me for the ice cream, but I must ask you to leave. I must close the store. The man looked at me as if I had gone crazy. I locked up the store and ran full speed the three blocks to our little flat. It was Homestead, not Russia. I knew it now. We belonged in Homestead. The boys, resting for the evening shift, sat up as I rushed into the room, newspaper clutched in my hand. What has happened, Emma? You look terrible. I could not speak. I handed them the paper. Sasha was the first on his feet. Homestead, he exclaimed. I must go to Homestead. I flung my arms around him, crying out his name. I, too, would go. We must go tonight, he said. The great moment has come at last. Being internationalists, he added, it mattered not to us where the blow was struck by the workers. We must be with them. We must bring them our great message and help them see that it was not only for the moment that they must strike, but for all time, for a free life, for anarchism. Russia had many heroic men and women, but who was there in America? Yes, we must go to Homestead tonight. I had never heard Sasha so eloquent. He seemed to have grown in stature. He looked strong and defined, an inner light in his face, making him beautiful as he had never appeared to me before. We immediately went to our landlord and informed him of our decision to leave. He replied that we were mad. We were doing so well, we were on the way to fortune. If we would hold out to the end of the summer, we would be able to clear at least a thousand dollars, but he argued in vain we were not to be moved. We invented the story that a very dear relative was in a dying condition, and that, therefore, we must depart. We would turn the store over to him. All we wanted was the evening's receipts. We would remain until closing hours, leave everything in order, and give him the keys. That evening, we were especially busy. We had never before had so many customers. By one o'clock, we had sold out everything. Our receipts were $75. We left on an early morning train. On the way, we discussed our immediate plans. First of all, we would print a manifesto to the steelworkers. We would have to find somebody to translate it into English, as we were still unable to express our thoughts correctly in that tongue. We would have the German and English texts printed in New York and take them with us to Pittsburgh. With the help of the German comrades there, meetings could be organized for me to address. The idea was to remain in New York until further developments. From the station, we went straight to the flat of Moloch, an Austrian comrade we had met in the Autonomia group. He was a baker who worked at night, but Peppy, his wife, with her two children, was at home. We were sure she could put us up. She was surprised to see the three of us march in, bag and baggage, but she made us welcome, fed us, and suggested that we go to bed. But we had other things to do. Sasha and I went in search of Klaus Timmermann, an ardent German anarchist we knew. He had considerable poetic talent and wrote forceful propaganda. In fact, he had been editor of an anarchist paper in St. Louis before coming to New York. He was a likable fellow and entirely trustworthy, though a considerable drinker. We felt that Klaus was the only person we could safely draw into our plan. He caught our spirit at once. The manifesto was written that afternoon. It was a flaming call to the men of Homestead to throw off the yoke of capitalism, to use their present struggle as a stepping stone to the destruction of the wage system and to continue towards social revolution and anarchism. A few days after our return to New York, the news was flashed across the country. 
of the slaughter of steelworkers by Pinkertons. Frick had fortified the homestead mills, built a high fence around them. Then, in, in the dead of night, a barge packed with strike breakers under protection of heavily armed Pinkerton thugs quietly stole up the Monongahela River. The steelmen had learned of Frick's move. They stationed themselves along the shore, determined to drive back Frick's hirelings. When the barge got within range, the Pinkertons had opened fire without warning, killing a number of homestead men on the shore, among them a little boy, and wounding scores of others. The wanton murders aroused even the daily papers. Several came out in strong editorials, severely criticizing Frick. He had gone too far. He had added fuel to the fire in the labor ranks, and would have himself to blame for any desperate acts that might come. We were stunned. We saw at once that the time for our manifesto had passed. Words had lost their meaning in the face of the innocent blood spilled on the banks of the Monongahela. Intuitively, each felt what was surging in the heart of the others. Sasha broke the silence. Frick is the responsible factor in this crime, he said. He must be made to stand the consequences. It was the psychological moment for an attentat. The whole country was aroused. Everybody was considering Frick the perpetrator of a cold-blooded murder. The blow aimed at Frick would re-echo and the poorest hovel would call the attention of the whole world to the real cause behind the homestead struggle. It would also strike terror in the enemy's ranks and make them realize that the proletariat of America had its avengers. Sasha had never made bombs before, but most science of revolutionary warfare was a good textbook. He would procure dynamite from a comrade he knew on Staten Island. He had waited for the sublime moment to serve the cause, to give his life for the people. He would go to Pittsburgh. We will go with you, Fedya and I cried together, but Sasha would not listen to it. He insisted that it was unnecessary and criminal to waste three lives on one man. We sat down, Sasha between us, holding our hands. In a quiet and even tone, he began to unfold to us his plan. He would perfect the time regulator for the bomb that would enable him to kill Frick, yet save himself. Not because he wanted to escape. No, he wanted to live long enough to justify his act in court, so that the American people might know that he was not a criminal, but an idealist. I will kill Frick, Sasha said, and of course I shall be condemned to death. I will die proudly in the assurance that I gave my life to the people, but I will die by my own hand, like Ling. Never will I permit our enemies to kill me. I hung on his lips. His clarity, his calmness and force, the sacred fire of his ideal enthralled me, held me spellbound. Turning to me, he continued in his deep voice. I was the born speaker, the propagandist, he said. I could do a great deal for his act. I could articulate its meaning to the workers. I could explain that he had no personal grievance against Frick, and that as a human being, Frick was no less to him than anyone else. Frick was the symbol of wealth and power, of the injustice and wrong of the capitalistic class, as well as personally responsible for the shedding of the workers' blood. Sasha's act would be directed against Frick not as a man, but as the enemy of labor. Surely I must see how important it was that I remained behind to plead the meaning of his deed and its message throughout the country. Every word he said beat upon my brain like a sledgehammer. The longer he talked, the more conscious I became of the terrible fact that he had no need of me in his last great hour. The realization swept away everything else. Message, cause, duty, propaganda. What meaning could these things have compared with the force that had made Sasha flesh of my flesh and blood of my blood from the moment that I had heard his voice and felt the grip of his hand at our first meeting? 
Had our three years together shown him so little of my soul that he could tell me calmly to go on living after he'd been blown to pieces or strangled to death? Is not true love, not ordinary love, but the love that longs to share the utmost with the beloved, is it not more compelling than aught else? Those Russians had known it, Jesse Helfman and Sofia Perovskaya. They'd gone with their men in life and in death. I could do no less. I will go with you, Sasha, I cried. I must go with you. I know that as a woman I can be of help. I could gain access to Frick easier than you. I could pave the way for your act. Besides, I simply must go with you. Do you understand, Sasha? We had a feverish week. Sasha's experiments took place at night when everybody was asleep. While Sasha worked, I kept watch. I lived in dread at every moment for Sasha. For our friends in the flat, the children, and the rest of the tenants. What if anything should go wrong? But then, did not the end justify the means? Our end was the sacred cause of the oppressed and exploited people. It was for them that we were going to give our lives. What if a few should have to perish? The many would be made free and could live in beauty and in comfort. Yes, the end in this case justified the means. After we had paid our fare from Worcester to New York, we had about $60 left. Twenty had already been used up since our arrival. The material Sasha bought for the bomb had cost a good deal, and we still had another week in New York. Besides, I needed a dress and shoes, which, together with the fare to Pittsburgh, would amount to $50. I realized, with a start, that we required a large sum of money. I knew no one who could give us so much. Besides, I could never tell them the purpose. After days of canvassing in the scorching July heat, I succeeded in collecting $25. Sasha finished his preparatory work and went to Staten Island to test the bomb. When he returned, I could tell by his expression that something terrible had happened. I learned soon enough. The bomb had not gone off. Sasha said it was due either to the wrong chemical directions or to the dampness of the dynamite. The second bomb, having been made from the same material, would most likely also fail. A week's work! and anxiety, and forty precious dollars wasted. What now? We had no time for lamentations or regrets. We had to act quickly. Johann Most, of course. He was the logical person to go to. He had constantly propagated the doctrine of individual acts. Every one of his articles and speeches was a direct call to the tat. He would be glad to learn that someone in America had come forward at last to commit a heroic act. Most was certainly aware of the heinous crime of Frick. The Freiheit had pointed him out as the responsible person. Most would help. Sasha resented the suggestion. He said it had been evident from most behavior since his release from Blackwell's Island that he wanted nothing more to do with us. He was too bitter over our affiliation with the group Autonomia. I knew Sasha was right. While Most was in the penitentiary, I had written repeatedly to him, but he never replied. Since he had come out, he had not asked to see me. I knew that he was living with Helen, that she was with child, and I had no right to break in on their life. Yes, Sasha was right. The gulf had grown too wide. I recalled that Poikert and one of his friends had been given charge of a small legacy recently left by a comrade. Among the latter's effects, a paper was found authorizing Poikert to use the money and a gun for propaganda purposes. I had known the man, and I was sure he would have approved of our plan. And Poikert? He was not like most an outspoken champion of individual revolutionary deeds, but he could not fail to see the significance of an act against Frick. He would surely want to help. It would be a wonderful opportunity for him to silence forever the current suspicions and doubts about him. I sought him out the following evening. He refused his aid, point blank. He could not give me the money, much less the gun, he declared, unless he knew for whom and for what. I struggled against the disclosure, but, fearing that all might be lost if I failed to get the money, I finally told him 
it was for an act on the life of Frick, though I did not mention who was to commit the act. He agreed that such a deed would prove of propagandistic value, but he said that he would have to consult the other members of the group before he could give me what I asked. I could not consent to having so many people know about the plan. They would be sure to spread the news, and it would get to the ears of the press. More than these considerations was the distinct feeling that Poikert did not want to have anything to do with the matter. It bore out my first impression of the man. He was not made of the stuff of heroes or martyrs. I did not have to tell the boys of my failure it was written on my face. Sasha said that the act must be carried out, no matter how we got the money. It was clear now that the two of us would not be able to go. I would have to listen to his plea and let him go alone. He reiterated his faith in me and in my strength and assured me of the great joy I had given him when I insisted upon going with him to Pittsburgh. But, he said, we are too poor. Poverty is always a deciding factor in our actions. Besides, we are merely dividing our labors, each doing what he is best fitted for. He was not an agitator, that was my field, and it would be my task to interpret his act to the people. I cried out against his arguments, though I felt their force. We had no money. I knew that he would go in any event, nothing would stop him, of that I was certain. Our whole fortune consisted of fifteen dollars. That would take Sasha to Pittsburgh, buy some necessaries, and still leave him a dollar for the first day's food and lodging. Our Allegheny comrades, Nolden and Bauer, whom Sasha meant to look up, would give him hospitality for a few days while I could raise more money. Sasha had decided not to confide his mission to them. There was no need for it, he felt, and it was never advisable for too many people to be taken into conspiratorial plans. He would require at least another twenty dollars for a gun and a suit of clothes. He might be able to buy the weapon sheep at some pawn shop. I had no idea where I could get the money, but I knew that I would find it somehow. Those with whom we were staying were told that Sasha would leave that evening, but the motive for his departure was not revealed. There was a simple farewell supper. Everyone joked and laughed, and I joined in the gaiety. I strove to be jolly to cheer Sasha, but it was laughter that masked suppressed sobs. Later we accompanied Sasha to the Baltimore and Ohio station, our friends kept in the distance while Sasha and I paced the platform, our hearts too full for speech. The conductor drawled out, All aboard! I clung to Sasha. He was in the train while I stood on the lower step, his face bent low to mine, his hand holding me. He whispered, My sailor girl, his pet name for me. Comrade, you will be with me to the last. You will proclaim that I gave what was dearest to me for an ideal, for the great suffering people. The train moved, Sasha loosened my hand, gently helping me to jump off the step. I ran after the vanishing train, waving and calling to him, Sasha, Sashenka! The steaming monster disappeared round the bend, and I stood glued, straining after it, my arms outstretched for the precious life that was being snatched away from me. I woke up with a very clear idea of how I could raise the money for Sasha. I would go on the street. I lay wondering how such a notion could have come to me. I recollected Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, which had made a profound impression on me, especially the character of Sonia, Marmelotov's daughter. She had become a prostitute in order to support her little brothers and sisters and to relieve her consumptive stepmother of worry. I visioned Sonia as she lay on her cot, face to the wall, her shoulders twitching. I could almost feel the same way. Sensitive Sonia could sell her body, why not I? My cause was greater than hers. It was Sasha, his great deed for the people. But should I be able to do it, to 
go with strange men for money? The thought revolted me. I buried my face in the pillow to shut out the light. Weakling, coward, and inner voice said, Sasha is giving his life, and you shrink from giving your body, miserable coward. It took me several hours to gain control of myself. When I got out of bed, my mind was made up. My main concern now was whether I could make myself attractive enough to men who seek out girls in the street. I stepped over to the mirror to inspect my body. I looked tired, but my complexion was good. I should need no makeup. My curly, blonde hair showed off well with my blue eyes. Too large in the hips for my age, I thought. I was just twenty-three. Well, I came from Jewish stock. Besides, I would wear a corset and I should look taller in high heels. I had never worn either before. Corsets, slippers with high heels, dainty underwear. Where should I get money for it all? I had a white linen dress, trimmed with Caucasian embroidery. I could get some soft, flesh-colored material and sew the underwear myself. I knew the stores on Grand Street carried cheap goods. I dressed hurriedly and went in search of the servant in the apartment who had shown a liking for me, and she lent me five dollars without any question. I started off to make my purchases. When I returned, I locked myself in my room. I would see no one. I was busy preparing my outfit and thinking of Sasha. What would he say? Would he approve? Yes, I was sure he would. He'd always insisted that the end justified the means, that the true revolutionists will not shrink from anything to serve the cause. Saturday evening, July 16th, 1892. I walked up and down 14th Street, one of the long procession of girls I had so often seen flying their trade. I felt no nervousness at first, but when I looked at the passing men and saw their vulgar glances and their manner of approaching the women, my heart sank. I wanted to take flight, run back to my room, tear off my cheap finery, and scrub myself clean. But a voice kept on ringing in my ears. You must hold out Sasha, his act. Everything will be lost if you fail. I continued my tramp. But something stronger than my reason would compel me to increase my pace the moment a man came near me. One of them was rather insistent, and I fled. By eleven o'clock, I was utterly exhausted. My feet hurt from the high heels, and my head throbbed. I was close to tears from fatigue and disgust with my inability to carry out what I had come to do. I made another effort. I stood on the corner of 14th Street and 4th Avenue near the bank building. The first man that invited me, I would go with him, I decided. A tall, distinguished-looking person, well-dressed, came close. "'Let's have a drink, little girl,' he said. His hair was white. He appeared to be about sixty, but his face was ruddy. "'All right,' I replied. He took my arm and led me to a wine house on Union Square, which most had often frequented with me. "'Not here!' I almost screamed. "'Please, not here!' I led him to the back entrance of a saloon on 13th Street and 3rd Avenue. I had once been in there, in the afternoon, for a glass of beer. It had been clean and quiet then. That night it was crowded, and with difficulty we secured a table. The man ordered drinks. My throat felt parched, and I asked for a large glass of beer. Neither of us spoke. I was conscious of the man's scrutiny of my face and body. I felt myself growing resentful. Presently, he asked, "'You're a novice in the business, aren't you?' "'Yes, this is my first time, but how did you know?' "'I watched you as you passed me,' he replied. He told me that he had noticed my haunted expression and my increased pace the moment a man came near me. 
He understood then that I was inexperienced. Whatever might have been the reason that brought me to the street, he knew that it was not mere looseness or love of excitement. But thousands of girls are driven by economic necessity, I blurted out. He looked at me in surprise. Where did you get that stuff? I wanted to tell him all about the social question, about my ideas, who and what I was, but I checked myself. I must not disclose my identity. It would be too dreadful if he should learn that Emma Goldman, the anarchist, had been found soliciting on 14th Street. What a juicy story it would make for the press. He said he was not interested in economic problems and did not care what the reason was for my actions. He only wanted to tell me that there was nothing in prostitution unless one had the knack for it. You haven't got it, and that's all there is to it, he assured me. He took out a ten-dollar bill and put it before me. Take this and go home, he said. But why should you give me the money if you don't want me to go with you, I asked. Well, just to cover the expenses you must have had to rig yourself out like that, he replied. Your dress is awfully nice, even if it doesn't go with those cheap shoes and stockings. I was too astounded for speech. I had met two categories of men, vulgarians and idealists. The former would never have let an opportunity pass to possess a woman. They would give her no other thought save sexual desire. The idealists stoutly defended the equality of the sexes, at least in theory. But the only men among them who practiced what they preached were the Russian and Jewish radicals. This man, who had picked me up on the street, and who was now with me in the back of the saloon, seemed an entirely new type. He interested me. He must be rich. But would a rich man give something for nothing? The manufacturer Garson came to my mind. He would not even give me a small raise in wages. Perhaps this man was one of the soul-savers I had read about. People who were always cleansing New York City of vice. I asked him. He laughed and said he was not a professional busybody. If he had thought that I really wanted to be on the street, he would not have cared. Of course, I may be entirely mistaken, he added, but I don't mind. Just now I'm convinced that you are not intended to be a streetwalker, and that even if you do succeed, you will hate it afterwards. If you were not convinced of it, he would take me for his mistress. For always, I cried. There you are, he replied. You are scared by the mere suggestion, and yet you hope to succeed on the street? You're an awfully nice kid, but you're silly, inexperienced, childish. I was twenty-three last month, I protested, resentful of being treated like a child. You are an old lady, he said with a grin, but even old folks can be babes in the woods. Look at me. I'm sixty-one, and I often do foolish things. Like believing in my innocence, for instance, I retorted. The simplicity of his manner pleased me. I asked for his name and address, to be able to return his ten dollars some day, but he refused to give them to me. He loved mysteries, he said. On the street, he held my hand for a moment, and then we turned in opposite directions. That night, I tossed about for hours. My sleep was restless. My dreams were of Sasha Frick, Homestead, 14th Street, and the affable stranger. Long after waking the next morning, the dream pictures persisted. Then my eye caught my little purse on the table. I jumped up, opened it with trembling hands. It did contain the ten dollars. It had actually happened then. On Monday, a short note arrived from Sasha. He met Carl Nold and Henry Bauer, he wrote. He had set the following Saturday for his act, provided I could send some money he needed at once. He was sure I would not fail him. I was a little disappointed by the letter. Its tone was cold and perfunctory, and I wondered how the stranger would write to the woman he loved. With a start, I shook myself free. I was crazy to have such thoughts when Sasha was preparing to take a life and lose his own in the attempt. 
How could I think of that stranger and Sasha in the same breath? I must get more money for my boy. I would wire Helena for fifteen dollars. I had not written my dear sister for many weeks, and I hated to ask her for money knowing how poor she was. It seemed criminal. Finally, I wired her that I had been taken ill and needed fifteen dollars. I knew that nothing would prevent her from getting the money if she thought I was ill. But a sense of shame oppressed me as once before in St. Petersburg when I deceived her. I received the money from Helena by wire. I sent twenty dollars to Sasha and returned the five I had borrowed from my finery.